Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 12th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. Where we last left off, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius had just passed away, and the empire has been handed down to his son, Commodus. Uh, thanks for having me, Aaron. Marcus Aurelius has a son, a direct blood son, uh, Commodus, who is going to be elevated to uh, the the rank of emperor, right? Um, we discussed in the last episode how uh, Marcus really had no choice in this, whether or not he thought uh, Commodus was going to be a good emperor or not. The truth of it was, was that his, the, the two choices were either to make him emperor or to make someone else emperor, but by doing that, Commodus would become a rallying point for dissatisfied people and Commodus himself even, and, and maybe become kind of like a, a nexus of, of civil war. Right? Mm. So, and, and so really pressed with the choice of elevate your son or kill him, it shouldn't come as a, as a surprise that Marx was kind of unable to do the deed. And also, there's all manner of self-denial you can do. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think... I think even the most duty-bound guy is going to have some trouble killing his own son. That'd be pretty. Yeah. That'd be a tall order. Infanticide <laughs> is a tough one. And I mean, you know, King Philip had his misgivings about Alexander the Great, and look how well great he turned out to be, right? <laughs> so, so you could kind of brush. And I mean, Commodus, by the time Marcus was, uh, you know, on the way out, so to speak, uh, he was like 15. He was still a kid. You know, mm. so it's like he's like maybe he'll grow into it. He'll he'll mature. Marcus did all the things that you have to do to kind of like ensure that there'll be no question of secession where he um, had he had Commodus named consul. You know, he rushed him into like his first battle with some Germanic tribes just so he could have like a win under his belt. And he had him show up in, in public parades. He had him co-Augusti. Augustus, Augusti, whatever you want to call it, right? All that good stuff just to make sure that everyone knew that Commodus was going to be the emperor. So there would be no question. Okay, got it. The full PR campaign in, in the works there. Yeah, absolutely. Because remember that um, that Rome still at this point has what's called, what historians call the princeps, which is they don't have a king. They they don't like that term, the, the king. The, the emperor kind of modeled himself, and we've talked about this in the past, as like the first citizen, right? He's the, um, he's the, the like, the, the de facto leader by just because like how skilled and efficient he is and how rich he is and how generous he is. Uh, but he's not like elected, you know? He didn't inherit his title, so to speak. He's just the best, you know? Um, after this, Commodus will be the last princeps. Mm -hmm. After Commodus, there will be kind of like a parade of short-lived emperors. You know, uh, there, after Commodus, we'll have what's called the Year of the Five Emperors. I'm sure you can imagine that that's not the Year of the Five Emperors. And the, the, the end result of that, the end result of that will be a new kind of like a military dictatorship that we call the dominant and the dominant is like there's no more qualms commodus will see the end of like the senate being like a real governing body after commodus they will be little more than like a social club 
Wow, wow. All right, well, let's get into it. So Aurelius, as you mentioned last time, uh, passes away as a result of the plague. And tell, tell me about how, you know, what, what, what's, how's Commodus's first hundred days in office like? You know, it's funny. They're not terrible. Um, Commodus has his father, uh, his father's remains brought back to Rome, has him deified, has all the ceremonies done. And he, he throws a bunch of like lavish gladiatorial games to kind of like kick off his, his first year in office. Right. And, um, the people love him for it. The The Senate is, oh yeah, sorry. And one other thing is that he also travels to the the Danube border, which is where uh, Marcus was kind of having this war with, with the tribes of, of Germany. And he ends it. He like very quickly uh, negotiates a peace deal with them and he calls it a day. He's no interest in fighting. Mm-hmm. We, given the... Um, the benefit of hindsight, we know this was not a terrible move. Uh, there'll be like over 50 years of peace now between Rome and Germany. They, the barbarians won't try anything really crazy for quite a while. We know that the territory that Marcus Aurelius was trying to uh, uh, take, steal from the Germans was going to be indefensible. And so not following through with that is good it's a good move to not follow through with it the 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 romans were not going to be able to do anything with it anyway but at the time you know not with that hindsight romans are notorious romans are notoriously hawkish and they they generally look down on any kind of peaceful declaration of anything and so the senators were not super thrilled about this decision they didn't like that that he was willing to broker a peace deal he thought that they thought, sorry, that Rome was in a position of strength. And and why? Why not just go in for the the closing kill? But the people didn't care. People don't give a crap about that, right? Um, it's, it's funny because just like Domitian, Commodus is hated by the Senate. And for the most part, he's not hated by the people. They're like ambivalent, if not warm, because he's always throwing uh games and he's always having parties that they're part of right but we know by now we should know that the best emperors have a way of at least making the senate happy so this is that's correct and on top of that domitian at least with him came the per the person hated the domitian hated the senate but at least with domitian he had a desire to be an administrator right domitian not to backtrack too much, but Domitian, if you'll recall, wanted to be a ruler. He wanted to be remembered as a good ruler. He just thought that the Senate was um, antithesis to that and thus went against them at every turn to try to realize his vision for Rome. Commodus has no interest whatsoever in ruling. And uh, besides throwing these games, he does little, if anything, to actually do his job. And It's bad. It's bad. Rule by proxy is always bad. Throughout history, I, I can't, I mean, obviously, I don't uh, know everything, but I cannot think of a, an instance in any history where rule by proxy was like effective, more effective than just that person outright being the ruler in their own right. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Absolutely. So he makes peace, the Senate's unhappy, 
people are ambivalent. Maybe they're even a little happy since he's throwing more gladiator games yep. to keep them happy and distract them. Yep, that's that's exactly right. Um, everything's going good for the first like year or so of his rule. Things start to go bad when his older sister tries to have him assassinated. Ooh, yikes. For a really stupid reason, to be honest. Um, she uh, still retains the title of Augusta, which is like, which means revered one for women, right? Mm. She's like the queen bee. And uh, more and more, that title and all of its uh, kind of like the, the social status that, that, that comes with that is going to Commodus's wife. Huh. Right? And she's pissed off. And, and the, the rumor, the, the, the historical anecdote is that Commodus's wife was granted like a special box seat in the Circus Maximus uh, that was originally hers. <laughs> and that was the last straw. And then she got some like-minded senators together and was like, okay, we're going to assassinate my little brother. Wow. Right? Wow. So she's kind of like fighting for that first lady type of status. That's, that's exactly <laughs> it. It's, it's, yeah. Like imagine if like, imagine if like Melania Trump tra- tried to have Trump assassinated because Ivanka was becoming the, the more important person in government and was getting to go to all the fancy parties <laughs> and and you could you get an idea of of why she wanted to do this wow uh, but ridiculous or not it has to be said that the senate really didn't like commodus and so it probably wasn't too hard for her to find some people who were willing to go along with the the um the assassination attempt Okay, so it fails. So how does Commodus respond to his sister? It does fail. So <laughs> the 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 person that they're paying to commit the assassination decides that they want to be like dramatic. And but they they break into Commodus's chambers and they they like yell something like cool, right? Like I, I don't I can't exactly recall what he says. It's something like like the Senate sends their regards. death to to tyrants right something like that but the time that it takes for him to say his cool thing gives the his uh commodus's bodyguards enough time to kind of like react and tackle this guy to the ground oh my god never hire like an actor to do an assassin's job right Uh, let let this be a lesson to you aaron just just do do the just kill the person you wanted to kill and then just lie later and be like oh i said this super cool thing and he was like (laughs) he started applauding because of how clever i was and then i killed him like just lie because these things need to happen fast right i I guess he watched like too many roman theater productions or something and he just (laughs) clearly clearly (laughs) so so the guy is um captured tortured and he gives up the entire conspiracy group right? wow yeah commodus already doesn't like the senate he already has a beef with them unlike domitian though who hates the senate because he like grew up watching the senate be like sniveling ineffective cowards we're not really sure why commodus hates commodus hates the senate he might just not like them he might it might literally just be so one thing that's notable about commodus is that he is the first emperor to be born as royalty there has not so when commodus was born marcus was already the emperor 
he lived his life as a prince and then he was eventually elevated to emperor no other emperor was like that even ones that get close like Domitian and Titus they were already alive before their father was crowned emperor they spent at least some years as not the most powerful person on earth right yes yeah and so Commodus is is in a unique position right now and so some of his hate for the senate might just literally be like a, a good old-fashioned disdain for your you're the lower class, right? <laughs> that's pretty sad that like the, the Senate is considered your lower class. I mean, that's a pretty... <laughs> um, no, I think that that's... Historically, that, that kind of happens where like the king... Uh, like, uh, spe- like if we look at like War of the Roses era England, right? The nobles in England all hated each other, but they had much love for the peasantry, mm, right? Mm. It, like it almost like you'd like... how Kind of like how your grandma is like nice to you but she's mean to your mom it's like that kind of <laughs> animosity like skips a generation uh, that that was a joke it's it's more likely it's like you see them more as rivals to power and you see the lower class as more like almost like tools a mix of like tools and pets i was gonna say that i was gonna say like a tool just kind of i even just think of julius caesar in the way that he kind of rallied the peasantry to sort of regain his yep. status so yeah that's exactly it um it's not always a like totally Machiavellian move either. Like Commodus probably was Commodus probably was not smart enough to view the peasantry or the proletariat, whatever you want to call them, uh, to view them as stepping stones to power. More likely, he just you know they loved him because he threw games and he liked that, and so you know we're cool, right? And then the nobles he didn't like because they were annoying and always in his way, and they wanted to do boring like pa- boring stuff like pass laws and he didn't have time for that he wanted to commodus was much more like his uncle lucius than he was his father marcus uh, sure. commodus commodus was in the vein of caligula and nero in that he had no interest in being a governor he had no interest in being a president he had no interest in being an emperor all he wanted to do was party got it not a paperwork guy definitely not so, so where was I? Right. So Commodus turns his already kind of like anger and, and derision of the Senate to like like homicidal levels. He is going all out murdering. He has conscription trials where he, you know, does the thing where you kind of accuse someone of treason with like little to no evidence and then confiscate all their property, execute them and, you know, kill their whole family. Right. All that good stuff. He's doing that nonstop for two reasons. One, he hates the Senate. And two, he needs the money because uh, he's throwing tons of games, tons of bread and circuses. He's doing tons of gladiatorial matches. And, you know, that he's bankrupting the, the empire. Right. All the work that his predecessors did to try to, like, balance the budget he is undoing really fast. So he likes to he likes to party and doesn't like responsibility. Young, born into privilege. Yeah. I, yeah. I think this is the makings of greatness. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he's young. He's very young. He's like he's a teenager right now. Yep. Right. Commodus is is a teenager. I mean, I, we talked about this with Nero and maybe even Caligula too. It's like what would you have done? at 15 how how effective of a ruler do you think you would have been you know right exactly yeah we will talk about it 
in I think in future podcasts when we discuss things that result in like the fall of not just the Roman Empire but empires in general and it's child emperors feckless rulers are really bad yeah absolutely people who rule because of reasons other than wanting to be rulers is really bad absolutely all right Right. so he's parting it up not he has a disdain for the senate how how is he balancing all of this? How how is he like? Is he is are they just constantly at war with one another, or does the Senate have another plan up their sleeve? I mean, the, it's not so much a war as it is a massacre. The 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 military is on the side of Commodus. Uh-huh. The the Praetorian Guard is on the side of Commodus because they are taking advantage of him to get stuff that they want, and so the Senate is powerless. They they can't. They can't do anything about this. Uh, so I wouldn't call it a war at all. It's just Commodus hates them and they do what he says or they get killed. And uh, some of the stuff that he says is like normal, like, you know, uh, give me all your money and uh, build this thing because I told you to. And then some of the stuff is crazy. Like he's like, I need you to watch me compete in the arena. Commodus fancied himself a gladiator, right? <laughs> and if you don't show up, you're on the emperor's bad side and the emperor's bad side doesn't mean you don't get invited to all the fun parties it means you're going to be accused of treason and assassinated no this is this is very interesting because i kind of see just to kind of connect this a little bit with today i think like a lot of corporations have like happy hours and retreats and all this other stuff now i'm not saying if you don't attend one of these you're going to get assassinated but it doesn't really look all that great. I feel like we, we this is kind of like used in the modern era of like, you not not only do you have to worship me as your boss or your emperor, you also need to kind of like enjoy these like extracurricular festivities. And it's kind of interesting to see that this goes back all the way to Rome of like, you know, you could be a great senator, you could be great at your job, highly competent, but I really need you to be at this party. I really need you to be at this gladiator game and just clap really hard for me. And it, it, it almost like undermines the meritocracy of any society because you could be the most incompetent lout in existence, but if you show up and clap really, really, really hard, that's, that's a better indicator of where your career is going. I think that I would agree. I think it depends on the kind of leader we're talking about. I think leaders who are interested in in actually leading and getting stuff done are care less for that stuff. It's really the leaders who want to be in power because they want to wield the power for something else. Mm -hmm. And, and that's when they're like, you know, I, you know, like I didn't become the boss just so everyone would ignore me. I became the boss. So people would watch me on karaoke night, you know, (laughs) and it's, it's, you're right. It's dangerous because what ends up happening is you have this combination of person who has enough power to force other people to do things against their will, so to speak, plus person who's not interested in wielding power, plus person who's easily flattered enough so that the the completely hollow uh, gesture of like, you know, drink, like, you know, it's like, Aaron, come out to the bar and drink with me or you're fired. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's clearly not real friendship. But like, <laughs> if I'm so shallow that I consider that I'm like, eh, good enough. Like those three things combined make for a dangerous situation where people who are sharp and paying attention 
will be like, well, this idiot, you know, this idiot Brett, he clearly is not interested in ruling. He clearly just wants a friend. And all I have to do is be that friend and go to this bar and drink with him. And then I can whisper in his ear and he'll do what I want him to do because he really doesn't care in the first place. Right. He's not that interested anyway. What would he care? And the other thing, but the thing I find very dangerous is that the people who are, you know, who take advantage of this opportunity may not be all that competent in what it is that they do. I think being really competent at your job just gives you high confidence, high self-esteem that you don't have to do as much of the flattery stuff. Like, hey, without me, we're not building any new roads. Let's just be for real. But if you have this kind of like flattery hierarchy, people who may not have like the best ideas, may not have all the best skills, find an easy way to become more powerful without having to really put in that hard work. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's you basically have flipped the you you it's not a meritocracy anymore because in in a meritocracy, the people who do the job best get elevated. But now I, in my, in this example, have made it not about doing the job good, but about something totally different from the job. Right? I, think, I think we should call it a flattertocracy. Flattertocracy. <laughs> Did you just come up with that? That's good. Yeah, yeah flattertocracy. You, you rise to your, the amount of flattery that you offer. <laughs> a trademark of the Aaron Corporation. No, I like it. It's clever. Um, it's dangerous. It's, it's, as, it's, it's as dangerous as if you know, you're, the subordinates were chosen by coin flipping because it means the same thing. And what it means is that the people who are getting elevated are not necessarily good at their job. They're good at something else that has nothing to do with their job. Absolutely. Right? And okay. whether that be because of bribery or because of just being friends with someone, it's the same thing. All right. So now we have a system, the most Incompetent people perhaps are rising to the top by via flattery. I'm going to kind of allude a little bit to the movie Gladiator, and it seems like <laughs> this was a way. And and you know, again, there's a lot of fiction in there. We talked offline about like Commodus does not really kill his father, but there's this one scene in the movie, and I really want to kind of pick your brain about it. Where before the games begin, there's a. It's really quick. It's like 10 seconds of screen time. They're throwing bread to the masses. So they would show up for these games, and then they're just throwing random loaves of bread into the audience. Could you maybe tell me if that's real or talk a little bit about the function of doing that? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I don't know if they actually, like, threw bread. It was probably more like – picture more like a carnival where you don't pay any money to, to, to get anything. You just, like, show up and grab, like, a bottle of beer and a slice of bread, and you eat, right? Um, it was so what you're referring to is a concept called bread and circuses, which is kind of like the, the, the Roman upper echelons way of ensuring that the masses stay happy and placated because their lives were kind of shitty, right? Mm. And they needed something to distract them most of the time. There was a bread dole already where Rome's poorest citizens which was an increasingly large amount of people, would get uh, bread, oil, and wine for free. Uh, Rome was actually one of the first, the world's first welfare states. I don't know if you knew that. Bread and circuses is different. This was not necessarily giving the people the food they need to survive, but rather this was like, like I said, like a carnival. It's like you, you're, you're not starving to death, but like, hey, a loaf of bread and some wine, you know, never hurt anyone. Let's, let's get on with it. Um, yeah, that definitely was going on. It goes on throughout all of Roman, 
not all of Roman history, but most of Roman history, for the most part, something akin to that is is going on. Different emperors use it to different effects. I mean, like even even Marcus Aurelius had his own bread and circuses when he um, and his brother defeated the Parthians. Interesting. Let's. I want to just focus a little bit here. So it seems like you know you you mentioned that Rome was probably one of our first welfare states. What is causing this like high level of unemployment? Like, is there just not stuff for the average Roman citizen to do that they just, because it seems like their day consists of waiting on bread lines, seeing yep. gladiator games and kind yep. of loitering. So what's going Basically. on here? Why, why is there this like high unemployment and nothing for them to really be doing? They also have the, um, they have a, like a system of the patron system where like people would basically you would wake up in the morning and you'd go to your patron and you'd beg them for money and then uh you know you would you'd have you could have several patrons and then in exchange for the, that money basically you'd owe them like some kind of like unspoken debt right uh it becomes enshrined eventually and an actual system but for now it's just kind of like an unspoken rule now, patrons would just be like wealthy people in Rome, and you would just beg them and be like, all right, yeah, I'll help mow your lawn t- next week if you just give me a little money right now. Not even mow your lawn. It's it's more like, like yeah, you know, I'll talk you up at all the parties. And, um, you know, if you if you need someone to like show up in a crowd to support like a law or a thing that you're doing, I will do it. You know, I- I'm your friend. Pay me to be your friend. Whoa. So man, this is really interesting because this is kind of like trickle down behavior because the people, the people who are getting ahead under Commodus are using flattery and they're like, I'll, I'll, you know, like I'll speak positive. And now this behavior is kind of like trickling down. I mean, it was probably going on before Commodus, but it's like trickling down to the masses where they're like, they're going up to rich nobles. Hey, I'll be your friend. I'll speak highly of you. So that that's very interesting that this is like new system is kind of like trickling. No, uh, the the system is not new. It's it's been around since the a long time. Caesar was a part of the pay, like Crassus, one of the members of the triumvirate, was one of Caesar's patrons. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I see where you're going, like where your head's going with this, but it, it had been around for a long. It had time. been. Okay, so yeah, maybe yeah. maybe it's trickling up. Um, <laughs> yeah. so kind of. What's now? What's why is there nothing for them to be doing? There's no there's no tasks for them to be doing other than doing this. Well, that's that's a good question. Um, <laughs> the answer is, I mean, if you ask a hundred historians, you'll get a hundred and one answers, right? Um, I, I'll try to be kind of broad here, so as to not to step on anyone's toes and ruffle anyone's feathers. But basically, Rome is founded as a city of farmers. And the more and more as time goes on, Rome goes from a city of farmers to a city of slaves. And more of the the farmland becomes kind of like controlled and stolen almost by the rich. And the rich are able to use their resources to Essentially, the the cycle would go something like this, right? It's like uh, you and me are farmers, right? I and this is this is just like a fake made up analogy, but you and I are farmers, and and you have like an especially good year of harvest, or even better, um, you go off to war, and I I don't. You come back very wealthy, right? You come back with gold and tradable goods, and most importantly, slaves. 
and now you have you now have a huge amount of manpower. You don't need regular farmers to work your land anymore. You have slaves. And you are able to use this to accrue a lot of money. And with that money, you are able to kind of like force me off my land. Ah. They had many ways of doing it from, you know, basically uh, we could consider like consider it like civil forfeiture, um, eminent domain, even things like um, there were laws about like who owned land. Like there were laws about if you own land, like how much you had to like till it. And like a war would go on and then like I would not be able to get out of the war because I'm not rich enough, but you are. And you're able to just be like, I'm, I'm not going screw that. And while I'm gone, you just move in and take my property. Right. And more and more, you have farmers being pushed off their land, consolidation of wealth in the hands of a few, and then using slaves to work that land means what used to be 10 farmers is now nine homeless people, one ultra wealthy guy and 500 slaves. Okay. Now, now this is very interesting. So this Roman peasantry class that, that would attend the circus Maximus, were they technically citizens? Yes. So they were citizens. Uh, 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 mix. Sorry. I said that too quickly. Some were citizens. Yeah. And some were slaves. Okay. Some so, were citizens, some were slaves, some were uh, provincials. Uh, immigrants would come to to watch freedmen, which have their own status, and they're they're children of slaves who have been bought their freedom. Everyone, everyone would go. So these, I, I, let, let's just focusing here on the citizens for a second. So I think that they there was a huge incentive to kind of keep those very poor citizens distracted and really really happy otherwise they would start questioning like geez all our jobs are going to slaves you know there's nothing there's not we can't make any money we can't feed ourselves because all we're losing all our land losing all of our jobs to to slaves so this is kind of like a concession from the ruling class to keep those citizens distracted from the fact that all of their labor has been lost to slave labor and has ultimately led them to be poor so the bread doles and the wine and the the gladiator games i imagine are a lot cheaper than if these people had been allowed to just run their own farms yeah i mean that's part of it is is they're trying to stop them from thinking about their miserable lives I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I think that's fair to say is that the, one of the main purposes, not, I wouldn't say the main purpose of the bread dole. I mean, it is the same thing, actually, all welfare. Welfare this at this case, time. Yeah. In this case, it, it's, you're correct. Is the purpose of it is because you don't want the citizens rebelling. You're not using them for anything in particular, uh, but you don't want them rebelling. So you need to do something to keep them from, to keep them eating or they'll revolt. And we see that we'll see that during uh, different parts of Commodus's reign where the bread dole gets interrupted for one reason or another and high-ranking officials' heads go onto the chopping block because they're just people are unhappy and so uh, never underestimate the mob. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, even though this problem didn't start with Commodus, it's it's probably a growing problem. You know, it's probably like I, I imagine this class is getting bigger and if there's any disruption to the fun, then Rome could really have a serious problem at its hands. Yeah, the Rome definitely... Um, at like this point in time is a, a slave state, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they're built on the backs of slaves and all, most of the labor is done by slaves. There are some peasant farmers, but the large plantations are done by slaves. You know, Got it. Um, like, like I had said, what used to be 
done by 30, uh, five people, uh, 10 people is now done by one person with an army of unpaid help. And then this, this causes, this makes one, it makes farming highly, land ownership highly lucrative for these people, right? Mm -hmm. At this point in time, and probably for like another thousand years, landowners are the, the most important thing in civilization. They make all the money, they control the food supply, they're the most important. We'll see in approximately a thousand to maybe like 13, 1400 years, that will shift eventually. Mostly in, in, in Europe, uh, we'll see that shift and more and more the people who own debt become the, the wealthy. Right. Got it. Um, that's when the banks start to take over. But at this point in time, land ownership is still the most important thing. And these these super wealthy Roman aristocrats are able to generate an enormous amount of wealth and not share it with anyone. They give only as much as they have to. Yes, they have to give something. They got to give people at least bread. And, and oh, yeah. I mean, if your, <laughs> slaves, if your slaves die, they're not very effective at, at okay. farming. Right. The other thing is that as they, the power becomes centralized and you get these wealthy farmers who, and they're not farmers, these wealthy aristocrats, uh, they get a power and authority to, more power and more authority to resist the central government and resist the Roman rules of law. Interesting. So like a, a kind of a mini plutocracy starting to build on the side. There. Yeah. I mean, we we even see that today with like, large corporations wielding their their power and their money and their influence to change government laws to do what they want mm. for better or for worse it's all happened before folks all right so let's go right let's get back, let's get back to commodus okay so he's antagonizing the senate but he's able to keep the the peasants very happy what other problems does he run into so the the main problem that he runs into is just that he does he he's in a job that he doesn't want to do he wants he didn't he didn't oh. sign up for this i mean he didn't sign up at all but he didn't sign up for this to to spend his days in troop camps and going over new taxes for you know elysia he signed up for this to hang out in bathhouses bang prostitutes and uh compete in the gladiatorial arena and be a star and so, and so what he does is he gets other people to do it for him. Uh, Commodus handed over his, the ruling, the, the right to rule, so to speak, the, all the day-to-day to a Praetorian prefect, a man named uh, Perennis. Perennis was very much interested in ruling. And Perennis, like, uh, it's, it's ironic, Perennis was part of the... Um, the party that was going to have Commodus assassinated, but then Perennis, I guess, maybe seeing the writing on the wall, sold out everyone uh, and <laughs> pretended he knew nothing about it. And then, uh, you know, used the fact that he saved the, the emperor from death as a way to get into the inner circle and eventually become his right-hand man. Perennis wants to rule, which is good i guess um <laughs> he does a decent job of delegating and day-to-day not as good as as most but okay good enough good enough that the empire doesn't collapse 
he he rules for about three years, right? He basically runs the empire. Uh, he's then replaced by another guy named Cleander, who does a really bad job because he's in the same boat as Perennis, but is actually not interested in ruling. He just wants power. Mm. Um, and all of this eventually ends uh, in ig- ignobly with Commodus being assassinated by those closest to him because he really goes off the deep end in his, in his later years. He tries to change the name of Rome to like Commoda. He tries to change <laughs> all of the, He tries to rename all the months to be his name. And also, like, it just him being a gladiator is terrible and they hate it and it's just too much. And he's eventually assassinated. Oh, my God. All right. Let's talk about some of these crazy ideas. So what was he going to do every month? Oh, this is the third Commodus of the year. Is that how the months would have looked like? Like <laughs> he, he thought he thought he was the reincarnation of Hercules. Hmm. And like Hercules has different names. And so each month would be named after like a different way of referring to Hercules, basically. It's funny because this is this and one other thing are the only two things that Commodus kind of it can be seen as like a trailblazer for, which is what in the future emperors will will act will unironically call themselves the son of gods and Rome will turn more into a theocracy. Mm, right. Mm. Uh, it really starts with with Emperor Diocletian, where he he call, he's like the son of Jupiter and he like has like this air of godship to him. And it's it's important. Like uh, China has the the mandate of heaven. Sure. And Rome is is copying that, but not really because they're not aware of it. But so this is like a kind of like an early version of divine. Right. Like I, I am appointed mm. by God and, and like, yes, I'm here. I wouldn't say it's an early version of it because China's been doing it for like at this point, like two thousand years prior to this event. Mm. But but yeah, it's this is divine right, and, and also the Persians do it and the Egyptians do it. Everyone's been doing it. Rome is unique in that they weren't doing it, and now <laughs> now they are right. And so they're like um, the only difference is that while Diocletian called himself the son of God, he probably didn't actually think he was the son of God. It was just a tool to um, to control the masses. Commodus definitely thought he was Hercules. So who, right? who finally pulls the trigger on Commodus? Is it the Senate that arranges this assassination or who, who exactly is the one that, that kind of just gets rid of him? So Commodus was not killed by the Senate. Um, the Senate wishes. The Senate wishes they had the the power and uh, kind of like, pardon my language, balls at this point in time to to pull that kind of power move. Commodus is actually assassinated by a small group of conspirators who were kind of like his inner circle, um, but at this point in time, even they are starting to see the writing on the wall in terms of his erratic behavior and like his danger to to the empire. You know, like. It's, it's gone way beyond the pale of just like a corrupt leader. And it's getting into the point where like, he thinks he's a God. He wants to rename the country. He wants to rename all the months. He's like, you know, he's lost his mind. So this small group of conspirators, which include like the leader of his Praetorian guard, one of his mistresses, they um, like maybe like one or two really high ranking senators, they uh, get one of his like friends slash like wrestling partners 
a man named uh, Narcissus to uh, kind of like corner him in the bathhouse and strangle him. He's succeeded by a guy named Marcinius, who doesn't last very long. And this is this destabilizes. Commodus is really bad. However, this destabilization from the top proves to be overwhelming to the Roman power structure. Sure. To the, to the point where it takes a really long time, about a hundred years, for Rome to get its stuff back together and get some form of like competent rulership where. Because that's the thing is that like, and, and we talked about this in, in earlier episodes, is that the biggest threat to these countries are not outside invaders. They come from within. Yeah. And a crisis of ascendancy is an existential threat to a country. Sure. I want to, yeah. I, I think this is actually a really good place to pause. Um, I kind of want to go back to our earlier discussion about having like a welfare state and maybe some of these more uh, economic and existential crises that are actually facing Rome right now. So in a previous episode, we had talked about like the coinage, there's inflation going on, like Rome is printing off massive amounts of money and maybe there's even counterfeit money going on. And I, I, I keep zooming in on this and maybe, you know, this has obviously been going on for a while. I just think it's a really highly dangerous point in a country or in an empire rather where you have lots and lots and lots of people with really nothing to do or unemployed and I, I think this kind of connects with the U.S. in a little way because we are also having these fears of like automation is coming automation is going to come take our jobs away and there's this like idea that we keep talking about like is UBI going to just save us is that going to be like the new bread dole is that going to just like placate everyone enough so that we stay there and I'm wondering if that you know if Rome can teach us something about welfare states, can it teach us like do bread doles work in like placating, uh, you know, a citizenry long enough? Like, can, can is that actually a sustainable model, or does it kind of like implode at some point? I mean, Rome does it for like two thousand years, so yeah, it's it's pretty effective. It, Rome goes through many changes in its government and its people throughout its entire existence, especially if you consider the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Rome at this time. So being a welfare state at this point in time is not a major issue for Rome, no more than it normally is. The major issues that are facing Rome right now and, and we can we can maybe draw some some parallels here are one inflation is a problem. The cost of goods is going up and the amount of money that people have is staying the same and more and more money is mattering less and less and to the point where like you might go to a shop and be like i want to buy this and they'll be like we don't take money you need to give us something of actual value ah right? okay so this is so essentially like people are now bartering skills or possessions yep. that they have because the money the money supply is essentially worthless because yeah, it's well big. yeah it's it's tainted right now it's not good the other thing is that at this point between or like right around, and this is not Commodus's fault, neither is inflation. Inflation was around way before him. Mm -hmm. But at this point, the Antonine Plague has caused a lot of problems for Rome. The Antonine Plague is directly causing three other major issues that are going to come to haunt and eventually bring down 
Rome. But the Antonine Plague on its own is a major problem. So we could talk about that for a second because it's, I mean, I should be insane not to draw corollary to COVID, right? Like, yeah, right. The, the, the plague, the, like in some areas, the, the citizenship, the citizens were reduced in number by anywhere from like, let's say 10 to 25%. Wow. wow. That's a huge loss of, of soldiers. That's a huge loss of taxable citizens. That's a huge loss of people who can farm land. Sure. You know, it's a, it's a disaster to the point where Marcus, when he would defeat these German tribes, wasn't always kicking them out of Rome. Sometimes he was forcing them to relocate into Rome so they would become Roman citizens. So kind of like replace the, the 25% of people that are dead. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, um, do they have any idea of, I, I know they don't know anything about bacteria, but do they have any idea of like quarantine or how this is spread or just, just like they're yes. rubbing elbows and kissing each other left no, and right? No, ancient humans are pretty clever. Uh, <laughs> humans in general are pretty clever and they're very fast to learn. And even at this point, they know not to be near people who are sick. Mm -hmm. um, Commodus avoided seeing his father in his final days because of the, the fact that he had plague and he didn't want to get, he wouldn't say infected because that didn't mean anything to them yet, but like, yeah, infected. So yeah, they, they had a sense of that, yes. No, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering here, so they, they have like 25%, you know, and that's probably across the board. Like plague doesn't care whether you're an emperor, it doesn't care if you're a slave, it doesn't care if you're a soldier, it doesn't care if you're a peasant. It spreads wildly across all the populations. I'm wondering, um, did it ever occur to them to start taking some of these peasants and putting them back to work? Or, or like, why, why does that not occur for them to do that? What do you mean taking these peasants? And putting them like the ones, the ones, so the ones that are on the dole, if you have all of these people dying, does that create more jobs for them to do? You know, it's probably a combination of one, they're not skilled enough to do it anymore. Ah, um, okay. They haven't been farming in a long time. Maybe never, right? Uh, and two, it's there weren't enough people. They there literally were not enough people. You know, mm. uh, these people might not have been willing to do the job uh, for whatever they were going to be paid. Uh, there might have been like some like rule societal rules that prevented them from doing it. Like they just like it's it's below my station. I'm not going to do this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean like their reaction was very similar to our reaction. I mean, it's the same thing that we say. I could ask the same thing about COVID. We, during COVID, have seen 500,000 Americans die from disease and unemployment is very high right now. Sure. Why don't the unemployed just go fill the jobs of the people dying of COVID? I, I think, um, I, to answer, I think a lot of people that are probably already retired or since it disproportionately affects the elderly, so that might... Uh, be one issue. But this actually reminds me of something I just read recently. I don't know if you saw this article, but the US actually has a very low birth rate right now. And I, I just read recently that we are three, you know, we are short 300,000 projected births or something. And some people think that's because of COVID. But how this kind of relates to Rome is that there is this fear that there won't be enough young people to actually work and kind of support the like retirees, kind of like what Japan has. So I'm seeing some parallels of like, 
you know, maybe they, maybe Rome did not have a declining birth rate, but you kind of have a system where you don't have enough skilled people to kind of work and contribute to the system. And then enough people that are sort of like in the retiree class or in the non-working class. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually read that article too. That's funny. I, I would say COVID played a role, not direct, not necessarily directly, meaning like it's not a lower birth rate because the people who would have been giving birth are dead, but indirectly, meaning like, uh, you know, people who are stressed out all the time about the state of the world are not having children. People who are unemployed and don't know if they're going to find another job soon are not having children. People who cannot go out and meet other people cannot have children, right? Yeah, yeah. All of these things would lower the birth rate without directly just saying, oh, the people who would have been giving birth are now dead. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think that this is, you know, and I, it's kind of hard to put our thumb as to, you know, the exact, you know, the, the exact way that we're correlated with Rome in this regard. But again, and, and you can feel free to disagree with me on this, but I kind of feel that to have citizens and not give them some kind of purpose or, or some kind of like plan. Like I'm wondering why Rome could not have built more infrastructure or, or kind of put these citizens to some kind of use, like, you know, rebuild, rebuild the Parthenon, rebuild some roads, build some more housing. I'm wondering like why it never occurs to them to kind of create some form of growth. Cause I, I, I have an idea that like when an empire has a surplus of citizens that are not contributing to that growth in some way. It could be an infrastructure project. It could be, so it doesn't have to be war. It could be something else that's productive. I, I kind of see that, 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 that stagnation in growth can, can ultimately has one direction and that's some form of decline. And again, um, the, I mean, America itself went through something similar in the Great Depression with FDR's New Deal, where he put unemployed people to work, rebuilding American infrastructure. Yeah. But it's important to note that he thought of that. That was not like an obvious thing. He came up with that idea, right? So it's possible that you're drawing on experience and the, the benefit of history that they just didn't have to draw on. Sure. The other thing, too, is that as time goes on in the Roman Empire, the wealthy are less and less interested in actually helping the government and supporting the government because they're getting less and less out of it. What is the point of investing in infrastructure and paying taxes when the person is at the top is going to use it to just throw gladiatorial games? You're not going to get any credit for it anyway. What do you care? What is the point? You're not going to do it. On top of that, the person at the top is maybe not collecting taxes efficiently because remember, it's a struggle. It's, it's work to collect taxes um, because the people who are being taxed will often resist you and try to not pay. If the IRS disappeared tomorrow, I'm sure America would lose a huge amount of its tax base <laughs> just because there are plenty of people who, if they were not pressed to pay taxes, would not pay taxes. Right. And so an inefficient and incompetent government is incapable of organizing the structure necessary to dig a um, an empire out of this kind of problem. Now, OK, now what you just touched upon does seem very much like today in the sense that I could imagine and maybe we're not at that moment yet, but where we're probably you know on the verge of entering this moment and we'll probably see more of this within the next 15 to 20 years 
I think that it's very easy for like billionaires to also kind of take up the same sentiment of like, oh, why do I need to invest in public schools when I have robots and machines that run my factory? Like I can easily kind of see that same justification of like, why should I pay these higher taxes when I can just hire a competent uh, robot to, to work in my warehouse or I can have, um, you know, this AI program, blah, blah, blah. Like I don't need to invest. Like I only need a few smart people to really do the higher end work. So I don't really need to invest in education for like the lower classes because they don't have any purpose. So I kind of see that same danger in the US. And again, we might not be able to see it as of this very moment, but as automation, as these things start to accelerate, I can sort of see that kind of cavalier attitude beginning to emerge amongst the wealthiest amongst us. Oh yeah the wealthy aristocratic landowners of ancient Rome in that they were normal like everyone else was. They did something to amass power. Their power begot more power. They used that power and influence to kind of pull the ladder up behind them to ensure that no one could follow. And then once they're at the top, they start doing that charitable charitable giving back whenever they feel like, right? And it's like, that's very that's very much how how Rome functioned was the rich would invest in the not rich out of the goodness of their heart. I, of, I, we're not at the point where like these people don't think it's worth it to invest in schools or in worth it to invest in hospitals because they still do that. Um, but we could get there one day for sure. I think it's worth noting that it's like um, if they're not getting anything in return for it, they probably won't do it. And in return doesn't mean money and it doesn't always mean power. But yeah, as these people become more and more powerful and more and more wealthy, uh, you know, that's the problem is that we as a community set up rules for how everyone should contribute. And then these people exempt, exempt themselves from the system and then give back what they think is fair instead of what we all agreed upon is necessary. See, this right. is, you see, I, I, I feel like, you know, when, and, and I'm going to actually play devil's advocate and defend the billionaires. So they're thinking to themselves or, you know, and we could think of Rome's plutocracy here, thinking to themselves, I'm never going to reap the rewards of this. I'm never going to do that. But I think if you can kind of sell this, like, okay, why don't we invest in schools? Like imagine someone had gone <laughs> to these Roman plutocrats and said, okay, if we invest in schools that can teach people how to build roads or build better infrastructure. Because as you said, the citizens at this point, there's a huge skill gap. They haven't worked in a very long time because you know the slaves have been doing most of their labor. We're but talking generations. Generations of no work, right? I think that if someone could have pitched the idea to these plutocrats in Rome and said, hey, we're going to train these people that haven't worked in generations how to start building roads. It's going to take a while. But again, you're going to be able to somehow make money off of that because when you're building stuff, when you're building new roads, there's always a way to make money off of that kind of stuff. And, and maybe that was less clear in Roman times. I can't say for sure, but I think that's definitely true in the U.S. Investing in, investing in giving people skills is always going to generate wealth because you can always use those skills to build new stuff, build new houses, build um, better infrastructure, you know, build solar panels on people's houses, right? Like I think giving people skills is always a positive direction than just completely giving up on humanity and saying, well, I can't extract any value from these people anymore. Therefore, I'm just not going to contribute to the tax base. The Roman, the Romans 
arist the Roman aristocracy weren't necessarily like just like if I don't get money out of it, I'm not going to do it. Very much so, Rome was powered by wealthy altruistic aristocrats. I mean, like the bathhouses in the provincial places were all built out of pocket, not with tax money, with the money of the local nobles, right? The hmm. You know, Augustus and his his friend Agrippa, they built the Colosseum now with, with their own money. Right. It's 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 um, they do it because they have pride in their community and they do it because they have pride in their country. But when the person when you hate the person who's ruling, you don't have pride in your community or your country and you're not interested in assisting them with whatever deranged vision they might have. Right. Um they more and more are saying, I don't want to help you because I don't like what you're doing. And this is this is what I'm saying with the billionaires is of today is that it's not that you have to convince them that what they're spending their money on is worthwhile. That's like the whole point of, of the government that we have set up, which is like, I don't have to convince you that taxes are worthwhile. That's not the point. I don't have to convince everyone that they need to pay taxes. We agreed to pay taxes. By living here, you tacitly agreed, and you're going to pay taxes because that's what the community has decided. You are a member of the community. I don't have to placate you specifically. The community has agreed that this is a good thing, and thus you're going to do it because you're part of the community. When it gets bad, is when these billionaires manage to remove themselves so they don't have to follow the rules and then they give back whatever they feel like. Imagine if one day you snapped your fingers and now all of a sudden no one had to pay any money for anything. Uh, everything was like an optional payment, right? And it's like, yes, what you're saying is correct. You could probably convince people that it's worthwhile to pay money for goods and services because that money goes to research and development to ensure that your goods and services will continue on and continue to be provided. But a good amount of people probably would be like, I don't care. I'm still not paying. Everyone needs to go along with the plan, right? And right. That's, that's, that's the danger that we're seeing in Rome. And that's the danger that we're seeing in the United States right now is this idea of like the billionaires know best. They're not going to pay for your school. They're going to, sorry, they're not going to pay for your school via taxes. They're going to pay no taxes. And then they're going to assess on their own if they want to quote, donate some money to the school. You know what right, I mean? Right, right, right. No, I, 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 I see, I, I think you're right. I think what we're seeing it's like, you know, we have like the benefit of like hindsight, obviously, but I, I do see that that very similar line of thinking of, of like having a, um, a disaffected wealthy class that is like, hey, I really just don't, I, I'm really rich right now and I'm totally cool with that. I don't really see yep. the benefit of this whole empire, whatever thing that we're a part of. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to take my billions. I'm going to just retreat to the Caymans and call it a day. And I, I, I think that we as a society, I mean, we could take, we could redistribute that wealth through, you know, the usage of, of legislation and force and so forth. Mm -hmm. There's, and I think, that's one way of doing it. We also have, have that ability to have these like meaningful dialogues and be like, hey, here's how you can become, here's how you can contribute. We can name this library after you. We can name this Coliseum after you, you know, your glory. And I, I think also kind of changing the lens of like, there is a way for you to kind of cement your legacy. Cause I think that these people also care not just about wealth, but they also care about legacy. They want to be remembered and they want to, they want to, 
be remembered and you can't be remembered being the selfish guy who fled to the Caymans and just said, screw, you know, let me, let, let me watch this whole society burn down. And we don't, I don't think we have the answer for this yet, but I think it's a combination of both. I think putting the hard hand of government as well as having these dialogues of like why it's so important for, for you guys to contribute to this overall thing that we're a part of. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's always a pleasure. This concludes the 12th part in our series, Rome, The Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azrod.